Hey, we have had an incredible summer of actually witnessing God's hand and God's grace at work around here, haven't we? We've seen some, haven't we? I mean, by show of hands, how many of you were, were here last Sunday for the all-church picnic and baptism? Okay, so we got a lot of positive feedback on the Kaufman sauce. A lot of people were excited about this, asked for the recipe, which for proprietary reasons I can't give away. <laughs> but if you Google in and out sauce, you're gonna get pretty darn close, okay? It was, it was amazing, the burgers, the festivity, the cotton candy, the lines of, of kids like running around, it was incredible. But the highlight, hands down, of the whole evening was hearing the stories of transformation as people were baptized, amen? Wasn't that incredible? Last week, if you were here, right before our Ukrainian friends, Roman and Helen, were baptized, they shared how God miraculously led them out of Ukraine in the middle of the night as Russian forces were shelling the community that they lived in, in their, their region. God miraculously brought them out of the country and in the process brought them to faith. It's one of the most powerful stories of Christian conversion and how God's grace has transformed their lives that I have heard in a really long time. And I want you to know something. As I have gotten to know Roman and Helen and their dog, Ludwig, who is a cute, very cute shepherd, by the way, and fallen in love with this family. And they have become dear and precious friends and a part of our community here. The terrible, awful suffering that millions of Ukrainians are facing today has become more proximate and more real, more disturbing. It reminds me of this quote by C.S. Lewis that he penned at the beginning of World War II, C.S. Lewis said something that's every bit as relevant today. This is what he said. He says, this war creates absolutely no new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent situation so that we can no longer ignore it. The permanent human situation, which is this, isn't it? That we live in a world where injustice and evil are rampant. And although most of us know this truth on an intellectual level, this reality has become more proximate, more impossible to ignore or set aside over the last few years. Each time that we open our newsfeed, we're confronted with unjust wars, with inequitable systems globally, with racially and ethnically motivated violence, along with corrupt leaders who have a knack of just throwing more gas on fires that are raging. Collectively, this has led to what many sociologists have dubbed the age of outrage. Haven't you noticed that there's almost a virtue nowadays with being outraged over something, with raging? And with the advent of email and social media, our outlets for raging over issues are almost limitless. But as the collective angst 
and hostility and cancellation have become normative in our culture, it's actually becoming increasingly difficult and somewhat risky to engage in honest, candid conversations about pressing issues of injustice and moral evil. However, here at River West, we are a church that's committed to not only talking about justice, but extending justice in our community, our city, and our world, globally in places like Rwanda and Myanmar. And the reason that we're committed to this is not because of some secret, hidden, socio-political ideology. It's because of Jesus. It's because we're a church that's committed as his disciples, disciples, students of his life, to emulating the way that Jesus lived and loved his neighbors. Amen? That's a really weak amen, you guys. You got to warm that up this morning, okay? We are a Jesus church, and we are disciples that increasingly want to become like Jesus. Amen? And add, there we go. Now, as you read, you're going to need that amen this morning, okay? As you read through any of the New Testament gospel accounts, you can't help but notice that Jesus was obsessed with justice, that his life was permeated with justice, that he's always going around talking about justice and bringing justice, extending justice to the marginalized in his day, the poor, the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, the outcast, the disabled, and the disreputable. So if you wanna know what justice looks like, there's no better place to turn than to Jesus' own life. And that's what we've been doing in this study, what the Son of God said. And this morning, we're going to take our cues from Jesus Christ and an account that's going to show us what true justice looks like. And so with that open to Matthew chapter 12, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be diving in this morning at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it. Lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hands. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word. If you're taking notes this morning, here's three things that this encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders and this man with the withered hand in this synagogue are going to show us today. What genuine biblical justice is, so what justice is, secondly, how to extend this justice to others, and thirdly, what this justice brings. So what justice is, how to extend it, and what will happen if we do. First and foremost, this passage helps us understand what true biblical justice is, which is a massive, massive biblical concept. You probably noticed that the word justice showed up twice in the passage. First in verse 18, where Matthew says he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then in the last verse, in verse 21, until he brings justice to victory. The word justice shows up a lot in the Bible. Now, the Hebrew term for justice is mishpat. You don't even have to clear your throat for that one. Can you say that? Mishpat. Mishpat. So the Hebrew word mishpat, it occurs 421 times in the Old Testament alone. Then once you you connect that to the related vocabulary word for justice in the New Testament, which is sometimes translated righteousness and other times translators translate this same word into, into Greek in the New Testament, which is dikaiosune. In Hebrew, righteousness is tzedakah. In Greek, it's dikaiosune. You take that word, which is related to justice, another 130 times we see tzedakah show up in the Old Testament, and another 92 times in the New Testament, the corollary, dikaiosune. I told you we were going to geek out. Okay, so the point is, it shows up a bunch in the Bible. You can write that down. Justice from cover to cover is showing up. Now, these words, righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat, some simple definitions here to wrap our minds around it. Righteousness, that word in the Bible, it means right relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, with all creation that causes things to flourish as God has purposed and intended. So righteousness is the state of affairs where all relationships and the scope of life are in their right balance and it causes this flourishing, this goodness and peace and equity. And justice is the actions that brings about those right relationships in the Bible. Justice is when wrongdoers are held accountable and broken relationships are healed, are reconciled and restored 
according to God's heart and intention for our created world. And here's what's so critical to clue in on from the passage that we read this morning from Matthew's gospel. You see, this encounter between Jesus and the man with the withered hand is more than a miraculous healing or an expression of God's mercy for this man in need. It was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that promised justice. That's why Matthew tells us explicitly in verse 17, look again, he says, all of this, this account between Jesus and this man with the withered hand, it happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew quotes from the 42nd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. So what Matthew was doing, if you're following along, is in no uncertain terms, he's showing us that Jesus is this servant, this just servant that Isaiah talked about who would bring justice to victory for the nations and set our broken, fractured world right. He would be the one that would come and reorder all relationships towards righteousness and establish justice on the earth. That's what Matthew's doing. He's showing us Jesus is that just servant. He's the Messiah. Now, honestly, I'm totally convinced this is one of those places in the Bible, as you read this promise that Isaiah talks about, of justice coming to the earth, that even skeptics and cynics want what Isaiah talks about. Everybody wants justice. We all want justice. Our problem is this. As fallen people, we can't ever seem to agree on what justice is or how we're supposed to go about bringing it, extending it in our broken world. There's a phenomenal book that I can't recommend highly enough. It's called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. If you're looking for a good read this fall, pick up this book right here. It's actually on our River West website underneath books, recommended books. You can go straight to Amazon and purchase that. Outstanding, excellent. In it, he quotes from this Harvard, Harvard law professor named Michael Sandel, who laid out three ways that most people in our modern Western culture tend to think about justice. The point that this Harvard law professor, Michael Sandel, makes, which is really, really insightful and helpful, is that even though you and I, we live in a culture where everyone says that we want liberty and justice for all, people have radically different presuppositions about what justice is. And so Sandel, this Harvard Law professor, he boils them down to three common views of justice. I think we have a slide for this. And although these are broad brushstroke categories, the reason I'm sharing this is it's going to help us understand how people nowadays tend to think about justice, but how in people's preconceptions of justice, how biblical justice is actually different from what many people think about when the word justice is used. So the first view, and Keller points this out, 
From Sandel's work is what is called the maximizing welfare view of justice. In this view, the just action is whatever will bring about the greatest amount of good and reduce the greatest amount of harm for the greatest number of people. So increase good and reduce harm for the greatest number of people. It's ideologically fueled by a desire for social equity and fairness between people groups. The main focus in this camp is restoration, reordering society towards a vision of equity and fairness. But here's the rub, and it's a big rub. In this school of thinking, what it doesn't do is determine what is the greatest good or what will reduce harm without inflicting more harm in society. This view is typically associated nowadays with liberalism or socialism in our modern context. The second view of, of justice that Sandel identifies is what he calls the respecting freedom view of justice. This is about individual liberty and rights. Justice is what creates the greatest amount of respect for human rights and freedoms of each individual to live in the way that they desire and want and purpose. So the main focus in this camp is rights. In fact, this is, this is fascinating. The phrase, giving someone their rights or protecting human rights, do you know that that actually would not exist without the King James Bible? All talk of human rights wasn't even in the landscape of our vernacular until the Bible came along. So all talk of human rights, giving someone their rights, it's straight out of scripture. And this view of just, justice, you need to know, it's deeply rooted in the fabric of American culture and history. The don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do mentality. The Pacific Northwest, we're doing our own thing out here, pioneering. It's deeply ingrained in our culture. This freedom view, it's centered around human rights, is typically connected with libertarianism in America today, political libertarianism. Stick with me, okay? All of this is going to connect to biblical justice. The last view of justice that Sandel talks about is what he calls the promoting virtue view, which is typically associated with conservatism. And according to this view, justice is served when people act as they ought to in accordance with moral virtue, with what is right and what is wrong. And the main focus in this camp is retribution, punishing those who do wrong and preserving a virtuous moral society. However, as you can imagine, things get tricky when the rubber meets the road and someone has to decide what is moral and good, what is right and wrong. Tim Keller's point in this book, which is incredibly insightful and helpful, is when you're talking across the spectrum today, it's helpful to be aware that although we as people are using the same vocabulary when we talk about things like justice and fairness, we're coming at justice from radically different vantage points. Now as Christians, as Jesus people, what we tend to do without recognizing it is whatever camp we're in, 
liberal, conservative, or libertarian, is we assume that Scripture supports our particular view of justice, which is deeply problematic, to say the least, to believe that God is in your camp and always agrees with you. But here's what's fascinating. When you look at these hundreds of uses of the terms justice and righteousness in the Bible, you find that the biblical concept of justice encapsulates all three of these views that Sandel talks about. Not just one, but all three of these views. Now for chart lovers, okay? Here is a chart right here. That, that I did out of love for you and to help you understand a big biblical idea. Biblical justice, it involves restoration, but it also involves rights and retribution. Okay, let me show you one place so that you understand that the kind of justice Jesus is bringing, it involves all three of these different dimensions. Just keep your finger in Matthew's gospel, turn to the left to Isaiah chapter 61, those of you familiar with Jesus' life and ministry, you know that in Luke's gospel in chapter four, when Jesus was inaugurating, starting his public ministry, he goes into a synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he reads from this text in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 61. I want you to pay attention to these different dimensions, restoration, rights, retribution, that show up in Isaiah 61. You guys still with me? Okay, good. All right, we're doing deep Bible work this morning. That's what we're doing here. Okay, so Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Pay attention to this restoration thing. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Ah, human rights. Human rights. The opening of prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you can do a deep dive on Jubilee here. Just Google what is biblical Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, giving rights back to people that were indebted, debt forgiveness, not the modern kind of debt forgiveness, biblical debt forgiveness. Don't have time for it. Google it. And the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort, comfort all who mourn, again, restoration, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, restoration again, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, restoration. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Then skip down to verse 8. Look at this. Retribution comes out. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, love justice. I love mishpat. And I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Right there in one chapter that Jesus quotes saying, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. It's it's a place where God's fullness of justice, his just promise, this is what it looks like. And there's two primary ways, back to the chart, 
that Jesus, the just servant that Isaiah talks about, brings this justice through proclamation, word, and demonstration. And you see both of those aspects in Isaiah chapter 61. He's bringing good news to the poor. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. There's this proclamation. God brings justice through his words, but also through deeds, through demonstrating and reordering society. And so he binds up the brokenhearted. He comforts all who mourn. He makes broken things right again. Now, think about this and connect the dots. Isn't this exactly what we see Jesus doing in Matthew 12 in this account between him and the man with the withered hand? Restoring somebody broken, bringing them back fully into society where this man's disability would have limited him with access to certain aspects of temple life. Restoring this man through Jesus' words and actions, breaking these unjust, unmerciful, religious Sabbath laws to do what's just and merciful and right. Friends, this is more than just a beautiful story. This is what Jesus, the just servant that Isaiah long promised has come to do. He's come to take all that is withered and broken in our bodies, in our spirits, in our neighborhoods, in our society, and make us whole and healthy again. He's come to speak up for the ones in our world who are rejected and cast aside and bring liberty and justice Not just to one people or one nation, but liberty and justice for all. This is what true justice looks like. Amen, River West? Amen. And Lord, let it be here in our broken city, in our broken world, our war-torn world. Lord, let it come. So now that we've seen what this true mishpat, this true justice looks like. Let's now turn the corner and consider what it looks like to extend this justice to others. And again, we're gonna take our cues from Jesus in this text so that we can learn to do the same, to extend justice in his name. Now, up until this point, I know it's been a heavy download of content, of abstract ideas, What I appreciate about this passage is that it doesn't just present justice as an abstract ideal or virtue. Instead, Jesus shows us what it actually looks like when the rubber meets the road to do justice, to live justly. There's so much practical wisdom that you and I can glean from this passage for our Christian witness, but I want to distill it to three lessons from this text that I think are so timely for us as a church. Three lessons, okay? First, Jesus extends justice through empathy, not apathy. Through empathy, not apathy. If you turn back to Matthew 12, I want you to consider for a moment how beautiful How provocative the way that Jesus is so empathetic towards this man with the withered hand. 
in verse 11 and 12, read again and notice Jesus' tenderness, his empathy, his care. Where in front of the religious leaders, he stands up for this man and he says, which one of you all, if you have a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. You know, this week, I ran across a story of a, a farmer in Wales whose sheep had become stuck in a bog with her legs and her body completely submerged in the mud. And it was there, stuck in the mud for two days. Just could not get out of the mud right there, and I saw this, this photo of this new story in, in Wales, it happened some time ago, and I said, you know, that right there, it's, it's a picture that Jesus is painting, it's a provocative word picture, that he reflects back, and that is this man with the withered hand in the story, he's destitute. Nobody can help him, he's stuck. He's stuck, that's this story, Jesus says, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, will you not take hold of it by both of your hands and care for it and lift it, lift it out? It's not just a picture, folks, of, of just this man with the withered hand in his destitute state. It, it's a picture of you and I. The Bible says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. All of us have fallen into pits our own rebellion, our own sin. And apart from Christ, we're all stuck in these pits like helpless sheep. We can't get ourselves out. But Jesus says, but isn't this man infinitely more valuable than a sheep? And so Jesus, with his words, so much empathy, so much value, esteeming the dignity and the worth of this man with this disability, I can only imagine how these words coming out of Jesus' mouth must have taken hold of this man and lifted him out of whatever pit he was stuck in. And yet, ironically, as Jesus is expressing so much empathy, so much care, speaking to this man and saying, stretch out your hand. And as he does, it's healed, it's restored, healthy like the other, Matthew says. The Pharisees, as this beautiful moment of empathy is happening, they are raging. All that they can think about is how Jesus is breaking their religious codes, violating their Sabbath laws, which by the way, are man-made Sabbath laws. And they are intent on destroying him. And they will. They will eventually set into motion a plan with the powers that be. But there's so much apathy in their hearts. It's a striking contrast. Here's Jesus Christ overflowing with empathy and love and so much hardness of heart, so much apathy on the part of the religious leaders. Apathetic people are indifferent to the needs of the poor and the hurting. And earlier on 
in Matthew's gospel, this was one of the criticisms towards the religious leaders in Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus lamented and said, these people's hearts have become calloused. These people's hearts have become calloused. And so they'll see with their eyes and they'll hear with their ears and understand with their heart but it, they can't. I would heal them because these calluses that have grown up on their hearts, callous, apathetic heart. If we're being completely transparent and honest together, which, which if you're going to be transparent and honest, church is a pretty good place to do that. I wonder how many of us would admit that we've accumulated some calluses on our hearts these past few years. I know I have. Case in point, isn't it easy to drive past the homeless camps that are scattered throughout our city and complain about the trash, first and foremost, without realizing the pain and the trauma that so many image bearers of God, human beings, are waking up to right now in our city? Make no mistake. If you want to write this down even, make no mistake, I wholeheartedly believe there needs to be just alternatives to tense cities scattered throughout our city, and our church is radically committed and all in to finding solutions to this. Last year, we helped 18 people living in tents in our city transition and get off the streets into long-term housing solutions. We are working with nonprofit organizations, not just individually, but trying to network them together towards collective impact and good in our city. We are working towards these just solutions, and you all will get invitations this fall to join us, okay? But nothing will change for the better, and we will not see a, a truer and juster Portland if churches are filled with Christians who are apathetic and indifferent towards the poor and the marginalized in our community, folks. Amen? And let's be honest. I think all of us have developed some calluses towards our neighbors in need over these last few years. Next, this passage shows us that Jesus not only brings justice through empathy over apathy, but Jesus extends this justice through kindness over quarreling. Okay, now this is really convicting, really convicting, but I'm not making this up. It's straight out of this prophecy attributed to Christ. In verse 19 of Matthew 12, it's right there. It just says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not raise his voice in the streets. God's justice does not come through quarreling. Even when Jesus was accused by his critics, which was happen, happening right here in Matthew chapter 12, he did not stoop to their level or shout louder to win arguments to justify and bring his authority. Instead, Jesus, the Son of God, worked quietly in the margins, purposefully avoiding the public eye and proclaiming the gospel, not by raising his voice and shouting with a megaphone, but doing it empathetically, 
quietly, claiming that the good news of God had arrived and that God was reestablishing his justice on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, quarreling doesn't get us anywhere. Outrage doesn't get us anywhere. In his book, which listen to this title, Christians in an Age of Outrage, Christian missiologist and author Ed Stetzer, who wrote this book ironically one year before the pandemic began, he wrote these words, which were deeply convicting to me, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. It's just a gift. Here you go. You can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show them the love of Jesus. You can't be outraged and on mission. Over the last few years, we've all witnessed so much collective outrage, haven't we? On social media feeds and within churches over issues like systemic racism, gender inequality, immigration reform, mass incarceration, and the global refugee crisis. And please, don't get me wrong. I wholeheartedly believe that Christians should care deeply about all of these issues. And if you do care about justice the way that God does, from time to time, you will feel disturbed and angry over the current state of affairs in our world. However, as disciples of the way of Jesus, we would do well to remember the apostle James' warning that he shared with the church. Listen to these words. James told the church in the first century that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is why we did a little bit of Bible word work, okay? The word righteousness, it's interchangeable with the word justice, there's many commentators, and I tend to agree with these commentators, that say this would be more helpful in the context of, of James's letter in, in the first chapter where he's talking about widows and orphans, people on the margins. To actually translate this, the anger of man does not produce the justice of God. That actually makes more sense. And that's deeply convicting. Church, if our collective outrage and quarreling in the name of justice hasn't gotten us anywhere, then there's got to be a better way forward. Amen? And Jesus, as usual, shows us that way. So lastly, this passage shows us that Jesus extends this justice through meekness over coercion, through empathy over apathy, through kindness over quarreling. And lastly, Christ's example shows us that justice comes through meekness. The prophet Isaiah employs two word pictures to drive home this same central point. Images of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Read them again in verse 20, where the prophet says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. First, the bruised reeds. You see, in Jesus' day, reeds were an abundant plant that would be scattered around the Sea of Galilee, and they were used for all sorts 
of purposes in Jesus' day. They were used as measuring sticks to measure things because they didn't have tape measures. And sometimes for the production of musical instruments. But reeds are also incredibly fragile. So a bruised reed would be really worthless. Having such a great supply of these reeds, if you found a bruised one, you'd simply throw away the one that was broken or bruised and find a better one for your purposes. Yet the character of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, is so gracious, so meek and humble, that Jesus would not cast aside a bruised reed but instead restore it. Secondly, the prophet says that this Messiah, this just servant, that a smoldering wick he will not quench. Again, driving home Christ's heart of meekness and gentleness in this passage. Smoldering wicks was a reference to the lamps in Jesus' day. That lamps in ancient times were made of clay, they were filled with olive oil, The wick for such a lamp would be a few strands of of cotton twisted together, which was hard to keep lit and almost impossible to keep lit when a wind would blow. So a smoldering wick is a very fragile thing. A wick that's about to flicker out. But Isaiah tells us that Jesus would come and bring justice to victory, not through brute force or coercion, the way that the Romans brought justice, but humbly and gently, laying his life down meekly as a servant. Friends, isn't it true that we live in a world where so many are like bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. People who've been wounded emotionally, spiritually, physically, they're weak. And their wick of hope is about to be quenched. But look carefully how this passage ends, friends. This is so beautiful. It doesn't end on the hope of people, these bruised reeds and smoldering wicks being left in their hopeless, destitute condition. Instead, it ends on the note of hope. This is the best news. This just servant from Isaiah, if he brings it and his people extend this justice on the earth, it all leads to one beautiful thing, hope. In verse 21, it says that in his name, the name of this just servant, Jesus, the Gentiles, the nations, all of us will hope. River West, this is what true justice brings. When it's done in Jesus' way and done in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory, not our own, It brings hope. This is so meaningful. That man with the withered hand would have loved to meet this guy. You know what I can guarantee you? He would say, if we asked him to share his testimony of what it was like to meet Jesus, 
I guarantee you he would say, you know what, I walked away that day healed, but I had more than that. I walked away with hope, with hope. And isn't that what we all desperately long for, River West? Can I tell you something? The reason that you're gonna see our church dedicated to justice and we will not stop is because our world is desperately dying for hope. All of us, before we came to Jesus, remember, you were a bruised reed. And I bet if we were being candid, there's some smoldering wicks here today. Jesus sees you. And he wants to pour out his mercy into your life. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come up here this morning. Here's what we're gonna do. This is what I felt as I was preparing this week, just impressed by the Holy Spirit. I know that for some, this might be a deeply convicting message where the Lord is is showing you that maybe even your preconceptions of, of justice, that you wanna humble yourself and And actually say, Lord, your justice, your view of what constitutes justice, it's greater than mine. Perhaps in this morning, some calluses in your own heart have been exposed. I know that has been true for me in this season. Before we go to the table and we receive the elements this morning, I just want, during this this first song, to to just, just really, really take our time before you come to the table and pray. And this is what I'd encourage you to do this morning. It's in the privacy of your own heart between you and the Lord. Stretch out your hands like this man with the withered hand before you come and you receive the bread and the cup, which symbolizes Christ's body. He was the bruised reed who was broken for us. His life was not just a smoldering wick. It was snuffed out. Before you come and you receive these sacraments and you celebrate the forgiveness you have in Christ, take some time. Don't rush to the table. Stretch out your hand. And the Lord, you'll find him ready to give you whatever you need this morning. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that you are working and will not stop until you've established and brought justice to victory, not only on the earth, but in our lives, Lord. So we welcome your Holy Spirit and pray that you would pour out your sufficient grace, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage, conviction, Father, to grow as a community that extends your justice to those, Lord, in our community that are hurting, that need hope this morning. Pray all of this in Jesus' precious name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. As your heart is ready, you can come, you can receive the bread and the cup, but let's worship the Lord this morning.